Why are we on a boat? All the stuff that you wouldn't think would be involved in powering content is here at IBC. It's really, really exciting as an, as an indie creator. These guys are extremely smart because they've caught up massively. So our project is trying to change isolation into imagination. I think very soon we're going to see democratization of distribution. You're going to end up messing with what they've already got there. I only found out speaking to these guys and I've been playing games for a long time. Hi, welcome to Beyond the Frames, a really special episode of Beyond the Frames. As you can see, I'm here on a boat with Haz. Hey man. Why are we on a boat? You know, we thought we'd have a change of scenery. We've been at IBC in the conference for like, what, four days now? And where is IBC? Amsterdam, yep. in the Rye. So yeah, I mean, hanging out here, talking about all the great booths we've visited, the experience. Couldn't be a better place than on a boat in the canal. So yeah, yeah. that's awesome. So. Beyond the Frames is uh, really an entertainment-centric podcast, media entertainment, and uh, talking about how we create content, the technology that helps us create the stuff that we create, from games to movies to series. And here at IBC, it's an annual conference, if you're not familiar with it, it's um, driven primarily by the broadcast industry. But because of a lot of changes that have happened in media entertainment in the last sort of five to 10 years, you're seeing a, a lot more um, crossover tech uh, emerging in um, in this space at IBC. So what are some of the things that stuck out to you? Well, I mean, walking around, I mean, look, first off, the last time I was here at IBC was probably pre-pandemic, man, you know? Um, but there's one common theme that I do find is that it's all very broadcast tech-centric, right? So one of the things that really stood out for me was the esports stuff. It was the first time that they're doing esports. I mean, I'm giving a keynote on Monday for it, which is gonna be awesome. But you can see how the hardware plays such a massive part in streaming esports because like when we say esports we're thinking you know, games like counter-strike fortnite league of legends there's all this back-end stuff and like walking around i mean we, we did that together remember we walked around and we started seeing like companies that do cables and transistors and server rack mounts and all the stuff that you wouldn't think would be involved in powering content is here at ibc so like you know one of my big highlights was chatting to black magic for example like obviously i'm expecting the usual updates on their cameras and resolve but then find out they did an iphone app which looks pretty cool yeah tell me more about that iphone app because this is taking a lot of the features in their cameras and their hardware but putting it into uh, an ios app that you can use on any ios device it's literally i mean whenever i'm on set i always have a viewfinder right so i use any kind of viewfinder to block my shots and stuff what's really cool about this is they've emulated what the camera lens would be like in terms of your field of view and everything you could record your footage as prores this is actual professional codecs right in 4k or whatever the phone resolution takes you can you know, transmit it to Resolve via the traditional way, but you can also link it with Blackmagic's cloud system, which is a new thing they've introduced for the last few months. And what that means is like, I have an editor in New Zealand waiting for shots to come through. I can film all of my stuff on my iPhone, hit upload and it uploads it and I can keep shooting as well. So it's a really nimble and fast way to get content out, but it's on an everyday device, your phone. Yeah, and that you can see that totally lining up with uh, a workflow where you've got a, some people on location, either scouting shots or taking final shots and sending it back to a team that might be editing offline or editing somewhere else and totally, you know, keeping that, um, that fluid workflow just moving. Yeah. Totally, man. I mean, I wish I kind of had that app. Like, oh, we're going right, to get a lot of this, going underneath a bridge, 
the echo, which is kind of part of the charm, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not every day you get to sail down a canal boat, talk about <laughs> animation <laughs> and uh, VFX and, and film production. So you mentioned seeing a lot of the back-end systems mm. that, as content creators, we're familiar with the software suites that we use to make the stuff, and then yeah. once we sort of deliver and send it out there, we don't really think about what it takes to distribute and deploy content um, across different systems, distribution systems. One of the things that I learned a lot about at IBC is there, there are dozens of brands that handle the playout, the ingest, the transcoding, the conversion, the versioning, that, um, yeah. that entire industries in and of themselves that you're just not aware of as creators. Yeah. So that was really eye-opening for me. There were a whole, whole bunch of brands and fascinating people we, spo we spoke to. And uh, something I noticed a lot uh, in the tools that they were talking about, the, the new features for their tools, is the integration of AI into their systems. So whilst as an artist, I think of, when I think of AI, I immediately go to Gen AI visuals yeah. or textures. But you know, these companies are, are using AI to make, um, to automate, yeah. like, um, to automate. Versioning and localization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that was because we spoke to one, right? And it was like an OTT, like, you know, company that distributes content. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because we, we saw one company, um, God, I forgot the name, but it's they, they use AI, but really to create metadata. So if you have like hundreds and hundreds of footage, archive footage, or, you know, if you are like the BBC or, or even an independent company that's been creating so much content and you want to find a way of locating that content to potentially license it out, you know, it's a nightmare cataloging stuff, right? It's you need long manual process, totally. prone to human error, of course. Absolutely. And now they have this AI system that runs through all the footage, does image analysis, figures out how many shots have a guy in there or a particular talent maybe, and even the metadata locations, all of that would get generated super fast because it's AI. And all of a sudden, you've got a library and stock library that you could commoditize and sell and, and you know, extend your, your business. And to me, that's a really good use of AI. Because like you said, we're so used to like seeing AI, you know, t you know potentially taking over people's jobs or, or gen AI mid-journey. And this is a great way that, you know, it's data at the end of the day, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. all data. And it's your proprietary data. And that's really important for... For commercial use, if you're using something like Midjourney as it is today, right now in, in 2023, um, it's great for concept art, but you can't really use that as a commercial nope. you know, solution for final pixels that you would then monetize, because you don't really own the data nope. on which it's trained. But um, systems like this, where you know, if you're whether you're an indie or a big studio, you've got a bunch of data, you've got a bunch of um, footage yeah. that you own yourself, but you don't have the um, you don't have the means to create your your own AI system using yeah. one of these off-the-shelf products um, is really the way to go to come up with a commercially viable way of making use of the. But also, now we've had yeah. the we've had the term quite a lot now when we visit these various booths that are offering these solutions, like white labeling, mm -hmm. right? Which is a really common term. But what's interesting is like you know if you wanted to set up your own, you know we spoke about this like jokingly, but like if we wanted to set up our own version of Netflix, our own streaming service, of our own content, say in 10 years time, we potentially could get one of those services. It's a white label, pull our own branding on, do a dealer with distributor or an OTT solution. All of a sudden, we've become a content distributor as well. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of reflective of the stuff that we've always spoken about, how you know not only the animation tools are being democratized for us to create, I think very soon we're going to see democratization of distribution. Yeah, you know? and that's really, really exciting as an, as an indie 
creator, knowing that that's a viable route now where you don't have to accept the, the long established gatekeepers, but you can uh, be much more involved in that whole, whole side of your, your business um, is really exciting. Um, now, of course, companies like Adobe and Avid are also building yes. really meaningful AI tools yes. like Firefly, Adobe Firefly just came out of beta and the Adobe stand was showing how Firefly is going to help multiple products from uh, obviously Photoshop but Premiere and um, After Effects as well. Yep. And we went over to the Avid stand. We did, we went over to the Avid stand. And what did you, you saw a few I mean, tools there? That I mean, the interesting thing about the Avid stand is because Avid has been like the oldest legacy editorial solution in, in Hollywood. Hey. That's all I love, baby. Now I'm Stam on the canal. You're just so friendly. So friendly. So hi to everyone. It's super cool. But yeah, Avid being the traditional legacy, you would think, oh, you know, yeah, these guys are not going to catch up and stuff. And these guys are extremely smart because they've caught up massively. They're looking into AI to extend editorial, still keeping the legacy of traditional Hollywood editorial, you know, the way they manage their data. But, you know, I remember we were speaking about this earlier, like the, Avid still has that market share because it's traditional it's um, it's a legacy and also studios you know well it's trust isn't it it's editors um, can trust the, the not only the interface but the you know the data that comes in yeah. that it's rock solid rock solid stability and all of that sort of stuff yeah and also like film finances when they look at you know like who's editing and like a particular editor would want to be on Avid so you're thinking oh they're not going to catch up with the likes of like Premiere and Resolve and you find that oh my god they are catching up because the first thing you see on their booth is AI assisted editorial you're like okay mm -hmm. right so they and again you look at what they're doing they're not doing stuff that is like automating an editor's job no they're doing things to help the editor like automating meta tags in their footage you know organize you know auto organizing your bin folder structure mm -hmm. you know using ai to figure out if there's any glitches in exporting because it's a common thing you know you export your footage or your rushes or your dailies and then you see like a pixel gone off now you don't need that one person at two in the morning going through everything to like you know do what you call a qc check you have your assistant you have the ai that just detect that for you yeah now on the subject of Avid versus Premiere and, and um, Da Vinci and, and all the others, not every creator is going to be using a non-linear editor uh, in the same way. For example, sure. I rely on the Adobe ecosystem because I'm not just a video editor, sure. I'm also the person putting together the graphics, so I'm going to be dipping into After Effects. Um, I want some of the interoperability and the connectivity between Photoshop and Illustrator, yeah. uh, supporting layers, for example. That's the sort of thing that, you know, the Adobe Suite's always gonna yeah. you know, provide an advantage for me. So that's why I don't go to Avid, because I know I'm gonna wanna drop in a layered Photoshop file into my workflow, into After Effects or, or, or Premiere and keep moving. Yeah. I don't wanna have to convert each of those to a PNG and then bring them to Avid or whatever it is. So it's horses for courses, right? Obviously, if you're, so. if you're editing a film and you're not really taking care of the graphics, you're really just looking at the storytelling and the visual progression of your shots, then yeah, you want something that's super reliable, yeah. rock solid, and um, tailored for that job. And that's where Avid and even DaVinci. Yeah, I mean, for me, I use DaVinci Resolve only because um, I can just bring in anything I want, don't have to worry about transcoding too much. But also, I'm obsessed with visual looks in terms of color. 
you know, everything that I do is involves color massively. So the fact that I can bring in footage and do a temp grade very quickly mm -hmm. and use Fusion sometimes to do a quick comp, all in that one environment is super helpful. But obviously, when you make a bigger movies, you know, and you hire an editor, you don't have control on what software to use. So I always find, you know, coming to place like IBC, even though I'm maybe not technically versed in Avid or as good in Premiere as you are, I'm aware of it. So when I do hire an editor on the next movie or the next show, you know, I can speak that language. I'm familiar with the tool set, you know? Yeah, and you know why it matters so much yeah. to that editor. So I caught up with Brett Danton, friend of ours. Oh, right? Brett. Love Brett. A amazing cinematographer. I caught up with him at the Pro Art booth um, yesterday. Um, really enjoyed our conversation. And it's fascinating to see how many parallels there are between his workflow and mine. We both use Omniverse. He's using it for very realistic um, renders uh, uh, for car ads, yeah. for product shots. Um, he demonstrated how he's integrated Gen AI tools that are built into Omniverse to help him ideate on different backgrounds for his for the 3D props building into his workflow and how he's got it integrating really nicely with the lighting tools that he loves as a cinematographer. Even though it's a virtual environment, wow. he's able to um, use his real-world lighting skills very easily, just sort of translates over. And I see parallels um, with my workflow, because even though I'm not creating hyper-realistic stuff, I'm creating an animated show, yeah. I'm using the same suite of tools, but in, a, in quite a different way. I am using Gen AI, but I'm using it specifically to generate textures for some of my 3D models when I'm you know, doing my scene layout or doing my look dev. And I'm using the same lighting tools, but I'm stylizing it a little bit because it's an animated show. Um, so it was really great catching up with him on that. And uh, what I noticed with the smart stages at IBC this year, the, the dime a dozen, the smart stages, <laughs> and the real-time graphics, a real shift in the last maybe two years, that real-time has become kind of the norm, which is great. Because just a few years ago, I was kind of rallying the industry to let go of the offline um, traditions, right? The traditional uh, offline way of creating entertainment to embrace real-time tech. So it's really great to see that change um, and Gen AI being like the natural extension of that because you're trying to get to speed and efficiency yeah. and the real-time feedback. What are some of the things that stood out to you in that space? I, I think you're right about the LED walls because like, you would expect there'd be like, you know, LED walls everywhere and there are, but it's such a different vibe this year because this year it's like, yeah, we have volume, not because it's a new thing, but now it's a new improved thing. We've mm -hmm. updated our software, we've updated the tiles of the screen. They're a little bit more affordable. We have new camera tracking software. Whereas I remember like, you know, at previous conferences when like the LED volume stages were being shown, everyone's like, oh my God, what is this new thing? Oh, it's not going to work. It's not going to, it's not going to be a thing. And you're right. It is part of a common tool set now, mm -hmm. you know, when producers are budgeting shows you know you traditionally would budget for a green screen shoot now they're like hey what if we budget for a volume shoot mm -hmm. so i even find like you know the places like ibc isn't just for like people that are looking to buy hardware but i think producers you know should and if they're not they should attend these shows because you need to be ahead of it you don't need to know technically how the insides work but be aware that oh there is things like mosis tracking you know there is like opti track for for mocha and there is things like noitum which now has this amazing, like, they did this really great deal where they do um, the head-mounted uh, for the HMI, right? Head-mounted um, display. And you also have the hand tracking, and you also have the body, and you also have the software. It's like this really affordable, independent mocap solution. 
that's right. super portable, doesn't need any external trackers, but um, but very nuanced in its, you know, the captures that you get are very nuanced, very stable. Um, and that's what I use on my show. I use the Perception Neurons right. on my show and an iPhone for um, facial animation right. and goes straight into Unreal or it can go via the Axis um, software that they have. In fact, they announced a new app um, to support their Axis software suite, a new iOS app that um, gives you even more control. Is that the face, that face one? Yeah, I saw that. Capture, yeah. Yeah. I mean, by default, um, their plugin for Unreal supports facial capture via iOS. Yeah. Um, it's the AR, AR kit, AR kit. kit stuff, and um, and full body motion tracking, including fingers. Um, but this additional app um, gives you even more control, which is really exciting. Um, and the fact that the software is free, mm -hmm. which is really cool. And I think like you know, spending time with Neutem at IBC, um, really, really got to understand like why they are still in the mocap market, which is very competitive. We look at all the amazing mocap brands out there, like the Accents and the Optitracks and all of that. Yeah. But in terms of like inertia suits, it's very competitive. And these guys still manage to retain that, that market share for them mm -hmm. because of, and I think it's not because they're doing suits. I think it's just the way they, the way they work, the yeah, way, the way the they way, approach the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. yeah. The full, they have something called the VPS. I think it's a virtual production system, the Neuton VPS. And um, it's really built around the pain points that you and I have been experiencing yeah. for several years. And it's not just our input, but the community in, in virtual production. Because virtual production, as we've said many times in this podcast, it's an umbrella term. It's an umbrella term. There's so many different um, opportunities within that the world of virtual production. Um, and for the way mocap can integrate into all those systems is kind of front of mind uh, with Neuton. They really look at the different use cases and the different um, pain points that creators yeah. experience and go, okay, this is where their system can help. And they're very upfront about, you know, uh, if you're trying to achieve certain things, you know, go, go to another solution because ours is really excellent at, at this yeah. spectrum of stuff. Um, and yeah, so m more power to them. I, I really enjoyed. Um, but that's the thing, right? You can combine these texts together to make it work, though, right? Like, yes, you can use a Neutem suit, but if you want like a certain fidelity to your face capture, then you can use something like Faceware or something, right? Mm -hmm. And it all combines. Because at the end of the day, it's all data that you're going to be export. You export in Alembics, FBXs, regardless of whether you're using the Axis tool or you're using Motion Builder to do cleanup, right? Yeah. And I think that's I think that's where we are. And when we look at IBC and you walk around the booths and you're like, oh, there's a lot of competition. It really isn't. It's just another version of that tool that has an additional feature. And I think it's great that we're not being forced to use a particular brand. Mm -hmm. We're not being forced to use a particular software. I mean, I use two types of GPUs. I use an AMD and I use an NVIDIA one. That's fine. I use AMD for games, NVIDIA for, for the filmmaking stuff. That's okay. That's fine. Yeah. It's really horse for carts, right? You said. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with USD part of my process, I feel uh, there's a real trend towards avoiding vendor lock-in. I don't feel like I'm locked into any ecosystem yeah. by going down the USD route. I remember like first day at IBC was the Accelerator program and I got to see you on a panel talking about the project you were doing. Tell us a bit more, like, you know, what is the IBC Accelerator program for those who don't know what it is? Right, so IBC as an organization has been going for something like 50 years. You know, it's, it's, a, it's quite the institution um, that attracts, um, as we've been saying, loads of technology companies and um, uh, fosters sort of innovation in the way it brings people together across multiple aspects of the industry. And a few years ago, they set up an accelerator program 
which uh, really focuses on um, disruptive technologies and uh, ways of tackling in industry challenges um, that just don't get looked at because everyone's focused on product and services that they're already doing, but they're not really um, getting into the, the ins and outs of right. industry pain points. So that's what the Accelerator program sets up to do. It's, um, it gets people in, in different parts of the industry together to really look at um, some challenges that um, ought to be solved kind of thing. Yeah, so you, you got involved, because I know there was the whole 5G network in, um, involved in this whole, mm -hmm. so there was a whole thing about it, which I found really interesting, by the way. Like, I'm not a comms guy. And I remember we were taking a boat trip, um, I think it was like last night, and I met one of the guys that were dealing with 5G, like the, the Koreans' coronation and all of that stuff. Um, and it's amazing because you don't really think that, oh my God, you do need a wireless network. And I'm like, but why? And you're like, oh, actually, when you're on an airport runway, you can't have cables. Right. So you need that. Or you need to quickly make a quick broadcast because this big instance happened. Yes. But even from a filmmaking point of view, right, you know, if you are in a location that yes. you, there is no, there's no plug sockets or generators, you need to be able to, like, upload stuff very quickly. Uh -huh. That 5G wireless network is very interesting. How did that, how did that fit into what you, you were doing? Right. So the one you're talking about is um, University of Strathclyde. Yes. And the R&D that they did to... A prepare a 5G network that at the last year at IBC, at the drop of a hat because of the um, the death of Queen Elizabeth, yes. they needed to scramble and help um, broadcasters um, provide coverage for that. But of course, where they ended up on the on the um, to, to capture the footage on the on the airport runway, because you can't run cables, you can't run a hard wire um, to um, to send the data back. So they had to, you know open up their 5G and set up a 5G hotspot right there and then and um, transmit broadcast quality data. But speaking of transmission, one thing that I did find out, which might have not been on the panel, but it was definitely after when I spoke to the guys, was they needed administration authorization to transmit. Uh -huh. Because regardless of whatever airwaves, whether you're on a 5G network airwaves or whether you're on like an FM radio broadcast, yeah. It's pirate, it's pirate transmission. So you need, and it takes six to eight weeks minimum. So they had to like put in some new protocols to get this stuff signed off right away. Because obviously they, this had stuff to be broadcast quick. So it just shows how technology can also influence policies that have been so archaic. Like, oh, it takes eight weeks to fill in the form. Whereas with something like, you know, the unfortunate death of the queen and they needed to broadcast this thing. They, they've made changes to the protocols. Right, and that change that happens in the industry, it kind of relies on several industry figures to kind of rally behind it. So that accelerator program, because that, that, that project came directly out of the accelerator program, um, is, a, is a really effective way of doing it. So if you're involved in the accelerator programs, it isn't just a fun sort of way to collaborate and explore potential you know, opportunities in tech. It's also about bringing meaningful change. So the one I pitched this year uh, was to take um, some of the infrastructure we have in 5G and some of the best practices that we've all kind of developed in real-time production over the past few years and put them to use for um, real change with um, uh, an audience that um, uh, often gets overlooked. So the audience I was focusing on um, was, um, and still is, uh, children in hospitals who are facing um, terminal illness or long-term um, illness, quite often in hospitals they experience a lot of isolation and kind of, you know, sadness because they're, they're 
don't know quite often what's happening around them. They're having to follow lots of uh, protocols and rules in hospitals and not really getting to interact with other children. Some of them, you know, their immune system might be down, so they've got to be literally isolated from other people. Um, and it occurred to me that we make entertainment all the time, right? To, to bring delight to people's yeah. lives, but we, we very rarely think through who those people are. And the effect it has on people. the effect it has, it has yeah. on people. And, you know, one of my clients received an email about a show that we make, um, uh, thanking us for making a show that brought him and his daughter together. His daughter had um, uh, very challenging learning disabilities, but through that show, because they're kind of connected of the show, she was able to communicate much more effectively wow. with her family wow. for many, many years, and it brought a lot of joy to them. And for us, it was like, well, we're just making a preschool show, but it meant uh, a, a world of difference to the, the life of this child. So it got me thinking, like, we make content all the time and we know that it's, it's fun content based on engagement or viewers or comments or whatever. But our, that show that we made was able to make such a change to, to that little girl's life without us even trying. So I thought, what if we actually tried to make a difference to children who are sick in hospitals, who are isolated? So our project is trying to change isolation into imagination so that they can uh, interact with like a, a virtual world or a character that, wow. uh, that's live streaming into the hospital and uh, make it much more engaging, like a, like a puppet show really, but a digital puppet show with like fantastical well, elements. Why, why do you think this is now possible today compared to like say five or 10 years ago? Well, I mean, being able to do it in Unreal Engine and have production values that you know, don't, you know, that really immerse you in that right. and feel kind of wonderful and you know, attention grabbing. Um, and 5G, right? So yeah. if we can, the, the challenge with hospitals is that they've got an infrastructure and protocols that protect the, the patients and the staff as the number one priority, as they should, right? So if you want to go in there and put in, uh, you know, network cable and, um, you know, high-speed internet, you're going to end up messing with what they've already got there. And that yeah. you don't want to, then you have medical There's medical equipment there, man. Right, you don't Heart want to machines. So with... 5G now, you know, you can you can get the bandwidth, but you can also separate it from other a dedicated networks. channels. Yeah. 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 So I think that that combined with um, real-time animation uh, is, is making this kind of show possible. That's amazing, dude. I mean, I saw the stuff that you were showing. It's really empowering stuff, man. Yeah, it's exciting. So esports is really picking up here as well. I think this might be the first year that they've got a dedicated esports section at IBC. I know you're delivering the keynote tomorrow for esports. You spent some time recently in South Korea, yeah. right, with the whole esports community there. Yep. Um, you also met some of the companies uh, just yesterday. So tell me about the, the people you met. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty cool. I mean, because like, obviously, we're developing Fortnite games, right? And that's in the esports um, community and the context of esports. But then like, went to meet these, these like, esport gamer kids are like 16 17 year olds and like super like excited and they're playing counter-strike and counter-strike is a really old game you know this is made in like 97 98 and it was do you remember the game half-life vaguely okay so this game called half-life was very popular made by valve software right um the guys who make steam and um they did a mod, like, you know, basically a mod is basically a bunch of people, a bunch of players that will create their own version of the game using the assets, right? Kind of like what Fortnite is today, right? And they create this thing called um, Counter-Strike, which ended up becoming an actual game. So, oh, I see. So Counter-Strike came out of an existing game. Exactly. It came out as a mod from Half-Life. And guess what? I only found that out 
speaking to these guys. And I've been playing games for a long time. So I'm like, wow. How long has? How long have you been playing games? I would say since the Super Nintendo. No, NES days. Yeah, that kind of sets my age, which I'm not going to tell you guys. But yeah. So I've been playing a long time. But PC gaming specifically, it's always been shooters, right? So I'm watching these guys play these games. And these games are not like Call of Duty quality graphics. They're very simple looking like compared to what we have today. But one thing I didn't notice, dude, was the speed at what they were playing at. It was close to like 300 frames per second. So when you're doing esports, every millisecond in that frame rate counts. If there's a frame lag or a drop, it ruins the experience. Uh -huh. So the first thing I asked these guys is like, how did you guys get into esports in the first place? And a lot of them just came from like the fact that they were on YouTube, they saw some footage and they wanted to play and then all of a sudden it became a community. And you find out that esports isn't just a competitive gaming thing. It's a community of people coming together all over the world. Right. And they go on championships. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. Let's talk hardware. What are you guys, what's your gaming rig? And like, I'm like, tell us what your gaming rig was like when you first started. And one of them started at the age of like 13 or 12 or something, really nine, some of them. And um, they're like, oh, we had a really crappy laptop. I'm like, oh, wow. And like, but we didn't care. Because for us, it was as long as we're able to chat to the other gamers and, you know, have a social interaction online, that's all they cared. Today, they're using the latest NVIDIA graphics cards. They've got great um, processors. They've got sponsorship. They've got sponsorship. They go around the world doing tournaments. They win prizes. But you know what's so interesting, dude? We've been so far speaking about GPU, right, being so important for like things like Unreal and Omniverse and so on. GPU isn't a factor for the guys playing Counter-Strike. Because, because it's a really old game. It's an old game that's dependent on CPU. See. And again, you wouldn't know this, right? right. Until you talk you to these guys. You just assume all games we need a graphics card. And right, because we're in that GPU mode, right? We're in Unreal mode. And these guys know it's all about it's all about the processing speed. We so don't I want guess to, an yeah. AMD Threadripper would be the an ideal thing oh, for them. Oh, 100%. I mean, I mean, obviously, they, they have like an NVIDIA 3080 card or something. But for them, their priority has always been the processor and the RAM, right? Um, and... and they don't really crank up the graphics as well for the obvious reason I said because they just want the fastest, you know, gameplay in 300 like frames. So I'm happy with 60 frames a second, by the way, but <laughs> 300 frames. Yeah. But then I had a really interesting conversation because I'm like, "What's the future for you guys? What are you, what are you gonna do?" They go, "Well, you know, I'm going to university." I'm like, "What are you doing at university?" I'm assuming doing game design. No, I'm going to do business and management and economics. I'm like, "Okay, interesting." So, w where do you see yourself going in the future? And they're like, "Look, you know, here's the thing." Playing these games, esports are amazing. It's a, it's a ride, but they've taken things from the esports world that I never thought they would have. One of them was saying, "I have way better project management skills." In fact, when I was at uni and I did my uni um, project, I jumped into project manager, and I was so good at it because when you're setting up these esports games, you're playing five to six players. You're the leader. You have to set the maps, set you know, set the checkpoints and go, okay, you guys are going there. You guys are going there. Let's really work in tactical mode here. And he carried that over in business and economics. That's, that's cool. freaking amazing, man. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. There are many, many routes. Even esports can lead to a completely different skill set. Totally. Because it's a crossover. The other thing that was so obvious about walking around the esports area is that, you know, all of these players are essentially broadcasters. Yeah. You know, they're entertainers. So of course you would be at a broadcast centric convention because uh, every one of these people on Twitch is broadcasting their own content 
um, to an audience that is super engaged. And that's how they got discovered as well, dude. Right, and that follows through to major events at physical locations in stadiums that also get, um, that also get um, uh, you know, broadcast on a, on a massive scale. You know, the, that journey from an eSports player on the laptop through to a high-end gamer right. and broadcaster, I've got, to, I've got to believe they're a bit like us in that they've got a hardware um, partner that's been with them on their journey that understands the thread. I don't know about you, but with, with my journey from the live action stuff I was doing at Universal through to the VR work, through to now making my own show and, and doing the project with IBC Accelerators, um, it's me moving through all those modes um, having people like like I, you and I both buy systems from Scan. Oh, 100%, yeah. I, I love the continuity to have with that team because oh, yeah. I can point to references like, oh, you know, when you know, a couple of years ago we were doing a, you know, a, a gaming or a VR-centric project, would I still use that same hardware, same setup? What do I need to change to be able to use Omniverse or AI? And I don't have to kind of do that research myself. Yeah. Yeah. I just tell them the use case and the, the, the goal and I wonder, you know, that having that as kind of like an extension of your team feels it's, really vital to me. Is, do you find that with, with you, you and your studio? A hundred percent, dude. And, you know, we always know as producers that relationship building is the biggest thing, yeah. right? Just one of the reasons we're here at IBC. We're building relationships. 100%, yeah. Catching up with old friends and meeting new friends and so on. And for me, building a relationship with a, with a hardware vendor is super important because, like, once you build that relationship, you have sort of like a second nature language they know your company inside out they know like oh i'm gonna you know when the new playstation comes out like hasimation is gonna like need a really new system and they're like ahead of it so right. when i do call them i say hey hey guys it's scan. yeah I'm, you know we're developing ps6 now or something they're like yeah we got you we know because they know our infrastructure you can't really do that if you're bouncing from one vendor to another because then you start all over again. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of like a relationship. And it's great to have your own frame of reference. It's one thing to have frame of reference of like externals, but you can refer to your own projects that yeah. they already know about, whether their yes. projects are released or not. It's great to have that frame of reference. But I just want to. Did you mention PS6? Do you know something we don't? <laughs> no, I'm saying if because there's a four-year lifespan on like kind of like replicants in Blade Runner. But there's like a, a four-year lifespan. <laughs> Do they have four-year lifespan. Four-year lifespan. The replicants in Blade Runner have four-year lifespan. Dude, yes. Which line of dialogue says that. It's the the scene in the famous scene of Rachel with the owl. With the owl, and then Terrell, the guy with the big glasses, goes four-year lifespan. Does he? Yeah, Completely. Blade Runner nut here, so yeah. One of the cool things that we both found, being movie buffs and filmmakers, is the fact that we pass a film restoration Oh, company. yeah, Galileo did. Galileo. Yeah. Dude, tell me your thoughts on that, because you were well into it. Like You were checking all the, all the reels, the IMAX reels as and everything. As soon as we walked past it, I was like, no way, because <laughs> it was clear to people like us what was going on. So it was great to see reels of film being streamed into what was clearly a digital scanner. And what I didn't realize until the guy we spoke to as he walked us through, it was essentially real time. So the, the film was going through at 30 frames per second, but you didn't have to wait for it to scan and save as an image sequence and then bring it up in your editor. They had the editor up, and even though it was coming in at 30 frames per second, you can specify in the editor playback 
at 24 or 60 or whatever. So it was the scanning is instant. We're talking about milliseconds here. And the quality was excellent. I think the, the one I was looking at with, had, a, had a Disney short mm. from back in the day. Uh, scanning in at 5K in real time. And it looked so good. The it detail. Full, it was full frame as well, full right? Full frame, yeah. yeah. So they would overscan it, so then you can crop it in your, you can in see your the own time. perforations, right? The, the holes. Yeah, the way <laughs> the, the perfs line yeah, up. Yeah. And they've also got a stabilization um, tool that automatically stabilizes. Because, you know, in film, not every frame perfectly lines up with the, the sprockets. Um, so naturally, when you play back, you know, analog playback means things aren't perfectly in sync. And that's part of the what adds to the warmth of film projection, which is why a lot of film uh, filmmakers still love that, love to shoot in film and, and, and uh, for the org organic nature of it. But then he walked through the other two machines they had. Um, they had the IMAX scanner in place, the yes. 70 mil um, stuff in place. That looked absolutely phenomenal. So clearly their stuff is is for archiving. So you know, there are companies out there with huge archives of film. They talked about um, museums yep. and uh, broadcasters, but of course, filmmakers today that still want to work or shoot on film. I remember shooting with film on 35 on the show Haven, which oh, is a wow. sci-fi show from yeah. several years ago. Stephen King uh, adapted a Stephen King uh, novella. Um, and I loved working in 35 mil because it was just, um, just just gives you a quality automatically it's without that you having texture to work too you get right yeah, it's you that grain you can simulate it but there's something digital. about it being like an organic thing like a physical thing yeah and you surrender yourself to that yeah. process and you accept that the contribution you can't control everything and the contribution comes from the medium itself yeah. so being able to see that being scanned at high res pristine quality it was just an exciting thing to see the machine doing that and i've often wondered so what is it like when they scan it in? Yeah. What's the process like? And this is, you know, this was great to see for those. They, they even had they stars. even had like filters for dust busting as well, right? Like, you know, if you need to remove like a scratch and stuff, they can automate that. You know, I could probably see AI coming into that at some point where they analyze sure. the frame and then remove, if they haven't done it already, like the foundry of nukes, new plugins or something. Uh -huh. But it just shows you that, you know, that technology still plays a part in restoring or archiving or preserving the history of cinema. Yeah, you know? new tech. New tech yeah. can continue to contribute to, uh, you know, hundred-year-old media. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a really um, eye-opening, inspiring, and um, informative time here at IBC. Yeah, if I had to pick three words, it'd probably be similar to yours. Um, definitely inspiring, inspiring to the point that. You know, there is a lot of technology out there that's kind of like, ins like influenced some of my ideas that I'm going to come up with. Mm -hmm. And that collaboration uh, for the Accelerator program, collaborating with Noitom, with uh, Curing Kids Cancer, Texas Children's Hospital, AMD, and um, Noitom and White Light all together, that collaboration, to me, I'm coming away thinking, you know, the message there is just, you know, you can make it happen by joining forces with people in the industry pooling your resources together. All over the world, all over the world yeah. as well. It's yeah. a global thing. Yeah. Well, that about does it for this episode of Beyond the Frames. Thanks for joining me again, Haz. Pleasure, man. It's been great talking about IBC and all the cool stuff so we fun. saw. I'm inspired to go back to London and crack on. Me too, man. Until next time. Bye. Your Bye. face. <laughs>